people think that, oh, when you buy a house, that's the key to success. You're going to build wealth and, and everything's going to be fine. Um, but there's both anecdotal and academic evidence that shows it might not necessarily be true. Welcome to Kogod in the Know, a podcast brought to you by the Kogod School of Business at American University. I'm your host, Alex Grodnick. This season, we're delving deep into the heart of the Kogod experience, spotlighting our diverse and inclusive community. As one of the nation's most diverse business schools, our commitment to diversity stands as our cornerstone strength, equally matched by our DC location and leadership in sustainability. Throughout this season, we'll address the challenges individuals face in their quest to flourish and thrive in the modern business landscape and explore the pivotal role businesses play in fostering human well-being. Stay with us as these themes unravel, defining the unique COVID experience. In today's episode, we're privileged to host Kimberly Luchtenberg, a financial researcher with a distinct and multifaceted trajectory. Grounded in a deep understanding of mathematics, Kimberly shifted gears into the intricate realms of finance, a move largely informed by personal experiences and a profound commitment to equality. Today, she delves into the nuances of equity and housing, emphasizing the benefits and challenges of home ownership for low-income households. Drawing attention to disparities in home ownership rates, Kimberly's work seeks to illuminate the underlying causes of these differences. Anchored at Kogod, an institution celebrated for its forward-thinking approach to societal challenges, Kimberly benefits from being in DC, a policy-making epicenter that underscores the significance of her research. Join us in this insightful dialogue as we journey through these intricate issues with Kimberly. Hi, my name is Kimberly Luchtenberg. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Finance and Real Estate. Very excited to talk with you, Kimberly. So I'm told you have an interesting path to becoming a professor in finance and real estate. Can you take us through that journey? Well, that's actually kind of a long story. I've got a non-traditional path to this um, space. So my undergrad is in math and the Naval Academy. So my first career was a Naval officer. Um, and then I went into defense contracting and worked in finance in there. Um, and then ended up going to get my PhD in finance and business administration. So I've kind of taken a a strange path to get here, but um, found my passion in trying to help and understand issues in both um, equity in housing and finance. Yes, you were right. A very diverse background from the Navy <laughs> to real estate and finance. It's fascinating how you focused on understanding equity in these large sectors that haven't traditionally been equitable. What sparked that interest for you? As a person of color, this has been an interest of mine for a long time. I mean, moving around as a kid, um, we even I moved around basically year to year to year, and we had to go and take down all the pictures of ourselves before buying, going to a new house, and that was just part of what mom told us to do to make sure that we were able to get the right price for our home. So this is a deeply personal issue to me. And just because you hear those things from your parents doesn't mean that that's necessarily true. So my mom believed that that was an issue. Um, but it's nice to be able to do research and to understand, really, is that something that's an issue? Wow. What an incredibly powerful story. It's evident how deeply formative experiences like that can shape one's path. After navigating through such personal challenges, what led you from there to bridging the gap into academia? Um, well, it started with finance. I've 
been interested in finance my entire life. I've done um, in teaching. And so I've always been, even in high school, I was a mentor and I taught, was a tutor. I started a tutoring programs with local high school kids when I was in the Navy. Um, this has been something that's kind of been a passion of mine. So it's been nice to be able to try to kind of connect those two. Yeah. It's amazing that you have been able to connect two of your passions under a single goal. From what you shared, it revolves around real estate, finance, and the quest for equity in these fields. Can you elaborate more on this? Sure. So um, right now, my big part of the thing that I'm working on the most, I'm working with a couple of co-authors, um, Ashley Eldemeyer from Tennessee and Matthew Winter from Stony Brook. And we're trying to understand the benefits to home ownership for low-income households. So whether or not there's equity in that space and um, whether they're whether home ownership is actually helping these low-income households. Because I mean, people think that, oh, when you buy a house, that's the key to success. You're going to build wealth and, and everything's going to be fine. Um, but there's both anecdotal and academic evidence that shows it might not necessarily be true. That's quite an eye-opener. Many of us have been conditioned to believe that home ownership is the ultimate goal, a cornerstone of the American dream. But hearing you highlight its potential pitfalls for low-income households offers a different perspective that's important to consider. Exactly. And so you, if you look at home ownership rates between you know, um, just saying white and black households, it's huge. I mean, white households have a home ownership rate around 75%. It's been that way for many, many, many years. Black households have a home ownership rate around 45%. And so trying to narrow that gap has been a kind of a policy um, goal. And so what we're trying to understand is whether or not that actually makes sense. Does it actually help, particularly for the low-income folks? Um, and we find that it does, actually, for low-income households. It does help having access to a home, does help the um, households build wealth. But unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily confer to the minority households. Um, they're not building wealth at the same rate, and in some places not at all, compared to their white counterparts in the, the low-income space. Wow. And why is that? So the big reason is their homes aren't appreciating. So, um, and this is, these households are all really should be the most set up for success. Um, this, the data that we're using is from HUD, Housing of Urban um, Development, and it's home, homeowners, households that are getting access to homeownership help. So they're getting credit counseling. They're having people help them to make the right decisions going forward. And um, we're, we're not seeing that they're, the houses that they're being either choosing into or being forced into are being, um, by circumstances like work or family, um, they're not appreciating at the same rate as the other, the white households. And so we only have, that's one paper and we're working on trying to understand that more because that's a, um, it's a concerning result. Right. That is quite alarming. So after consolidating your findings, how did you plan on translating this research into tangible action or recommendations in the real world? Well, hopefully, we're, we're still trying to understand all the pieces behind it. There are some other research that other researchers are doing that are showing that um, some of that reason might be due to higher levels of um, default and delinquency. So we don't have access to those data yet. We're working on it um, so we can try to find that. We're also working on a study that we could take a look at um, if that's happening across all age spectrums. So that current study I was talking about was about working age folks. And we'd also like to see, well, what happens 
when we look at um, seniors, is this something that is continuing into old, older age as well? So, I mean, there's it's a lot of work still <laughs> to be done. Yeah, sounds like it. But as you've mentioned, this work could have a huge impact. So Kim, building on that, does your research suggest any specific barriers or factors that are preventing individuals from truly flourishing and thriving in today's world? Well, that's, yeah, that's that's basically what we're trying to look at from the point of view of my research. It's differences in outcomes. And um, so these programs that are out trying to help people may not be able to affect people all in the same way. Um, and so that's a... That's one of the things, that's actually one of the main things that we're trying to understand is, are there differences in the way that these programs are able to help the households they're intended to help? Right. On this podcast, we often emphasize the concept of doing well by doing good. It's incredibly impactful when a company's bottom line aligns with a positive global impact. Given what you've shared about structures and government programs, do you see a specific role or responsibility for businesses and governments in championing human well-being? I mean, personally, I think that absolutely it's important for businesses to try to support, you know, well-being of of communities because they're they're part of that community. But my research really, like you said, is speaking more towards the government side. And I think that's pretty clear clear cut is that the government is trying to, has a mandate to make sure that that things are equitably enforced. And I think they really are doing a good job of trying to make sure that's happening. The problem is, is we don't always know. I mean, even if you've got a, a really well-intentioned, good idea about the way to provide support, if it's not coming, if the results don't match equitably across the board, then there um, there might be some results that are unintended. And so um, it's one of the things that we're trying to shine a light on is whether or not that's happening. And it's not necessarily a given that there would be disparities for sure. Um, but if there are, and we can provide some information about if that's happening, the, and on the converse, if it's not happening, what is happening with the programs that is keeping them from having these disparate type problems that other programs are having? Um, we're hoping to help give information so that the decisions can be made in a, with more information. Right. It's very interesting to consider the broader implications. Kim, on a more personal note, do you witness and experience these effects at your local level? How does this resonate in your day-to-day life? Well, I mean, fortunately, this is not impacting me personally um, because the, the areas that we're looking at are, are low-income households. Um, but I do know that my co-authors do. So one of one of the reasons we were investigating this particular program is um, someone in their family was looking at getting assistance through this program. And so that was kind of the impetus between about getting into this particular program. It's not one that most people know about. So most people understand that the government provides rental assistance, but fewer people understand that there are programs that allow assistance for homeownership as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's probably part of the issue too. The knowledge of knowing that these things just exist. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> So let's talk about COGOD. What does it mean for you to be doing your research here? Well, COGOD is awesome. Um, Obviously, I'm here because I want to be here. Um, And ESG has been kind of a hot topic around, I guess, universities and in the United States recently. But COGOD's been doing this for a while. I mean, we were the first university to have an anti-racist research and policy center. We were the first carbon neutral university. So doing the research here really kind of makes sense. Um, and it's been really helpful for me as a researcher to be supported by this. Like um, Last fall, I was 
honored to receive the first Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center Faculty Fellowship. And what that did was gave me both time and some funding to be able to promote my research, to spend more time working on my research, um, and it's really been beneficial. Um, also, you know, so that's AU outside, then COGOD has also been extraordinarily supportive, as well as my finance department colleagues have been really helpful giving feedback on early stage research and um, late stage research and just really supporting me in all the ways that are helpful as a, as an assistant professor. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of rough. So <laughs> trying to, having the support of both your department and the school um, and the university has been really great. Yeah. And are there benefits to be in DC for your work? Well, absolutely. Um, having, you know, being close, our data comes from HUD. So being close to HUD is, is really helpful for that. And then also you're just kind of surrounded by not just in, I mean, DC, but the university, everyone's thinking about policy. So it's not like you're the strange person who's interested in that. It's really kind of in the culture. So yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. That community aspect sounds very uplifting. It is. It is. It's it's a great place to be. It's a great place to be. With those words, Kimberly beautifully encapsulates her experiences at COGOD, her journey shaped by formidable challenges and a burning passion for equity, offers us invaluable insights into finance and housing. It's a testament to the power of perseverance and the right institutional support. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in, and please continue to stay with us as we explore the rich tapestry that makes up the Kogod experience.